you know, we're trying to get a smaller number of people that we really know well. And, you know, we have investors who are retiring and, you know, these are big decisions and they're allocating significant capital toward different projects. And so I think it's important to just get face to face. Maybe the best tool is a cup of coffee. Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate, from co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. So Ready to Scale is our new second season here where we focus on the business side of real estate. So namely, we're talking about three key concepts that I like to call APS of real estate. We're going to talk about assets, process and strategy. So if you're going to listen, you're going to learn valuable business principles to help your real estate business, whatever it may be. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a minute to rate us and don't forget to like and follow along with me on social media as well. Okay, so today I'm starting a new tradition. Every month, I will give away one free document that you can use and that can help you scale your real estate journey. So this month, you can download the document called Determine Your Investment Criteria. This document would help you focus and choose the real estate investment that is right for you. You can find the document at www.elliepearlman.com resources. So again, you can find it at www.elliepearlman.com slash resources. So our guest today is Mike Craig, whose first deal was actually in 2003 when he purchased an apartment in Russia. So since then, Mike has been investing in real estate for nearly two decades and is the co-founder of Steeple Rock Partners, a real estate investment firm that acquires multifamily apartments, self-storage, and other high cash producing commercial real estate. So Craig has helped provide investors fund to purchase 3,800 apartments and self-storage units worth of $300 million. Mike earned a degree in business administration for the University of Montana with an emphasis in finance and international business. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you, Ellie. Good to be here. Yeah, absolutely. It's great, you know, to have you. And we were chatting a little bit before I I press the record button. So right now you're in Texas, right? That's right. I'm in Austin, Texas, but with 100 degree weather, I think I want to be where you're at in in Santa Monica. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, weather is great here when we don't enjoy occasion earthquakes, we can actually focus on the weather. So that's (laughs) That's right. Yeah. I've had a couple of those recently. I've heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. So you lived in Russia. You were born here in the US, but you lived in Russia several years. And this is where you actually started buying real estate, which is interesting because usually Americans, they start 
buying real estate in America. And then they, you know, go outside the boundaries of the US. So tell me, how is it like to buy real estate there? How is it different compared to buying properties here in the US? Well, I think fundamentally, I mean, I studied finance in college. And of course, you know, one of the things you study is, you know, the finance of real estate, and you look at price to rent ratios. And I grew up in, in Western Montana. And at the time, you know, I, I would do the math and you know, the price to rent ratio never worked to buy something. And I was in my 20s when I left to go work in Russia. And, you know, I, my wife and I were going to be there for about five or six years. So we decided, hey, we ought to buy something. You know, if we're going to be here for at least five years, it's the same math problem. I mean, you know, if it's financially feasible, we ought to buy something. And so we just looked at the, at the market and we, you know, did some diligence on the legal system. And, you know, I interviewed some business folks. I had some guys that were telling me, don't do it. The mafia here is, you know, they're going to come and take it. They take businesses all the time. And so we just, you know, I did quite a few interviews with other business guys who had bought. There's in particular a French businessman who owns some coffee shops, interviewed him, talked to him, and he explained to me how real estate worked, the legal system in Russia around real estate. And I looked at the apartments on the financial side. I mean, I could buy one of these things for $70,000 or I could rent one for eight or 900. And that was a time when the rent rates were like 10 to 15% per year. And wow. so we, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to pay the same amount anyway over five years if I rent, but if I buy, and even if the market crashes and I lose half the value, I still come out ahead. So it was just that basic math of real estate that we all do, you know, for a home purchase. And the diligence process was different. Of course, you know, you've got to, study the legal system and you've got to understand that market. The interesting thing about Russia was that I had an attorney that was my broker and she went out and did the diligence on the buildings to make sure that there was, you know, they were structurally sound and there were certain things you, you would do with certain organization in the city that had records on the, you know, the structural integrity of these buildings. And so she knew who to go to and talk with. And, but I paid $500 like it was a flat $500 fee. That was my realtor. You know, she was the realtor. She was the attorney. She did the title stuff. She did everything for 500 bucks. Wow. I had never bought in the United States. This is my first real estate purchase of my entire life by myself. You know, I was, I don't know. I don't, I don't even, I think I was like 24 or 25 or something. So I just thought, oh, wow, this is great. You just, you know, you pay someone 500 bucks and they do everything <laughs> and you go look at different apartments now, the other thing about it that was interesting was there's no mortgage market. Like I, I walked into a Russian bank and said, hey, I'm going to buy this apartment. And they said, yeah, we can loan you money. The rate's about 20%. And so I thought, well, that's, that's just not going to pencil very well <laughs> if I try to finance you know, at 20%. That's terrible. And, and I didn't want to be beholden to a Russian bank. I just, you know, at the time, I just didn't think that would be very smart. So what I did, I think I had like 15,000, you know, cash that we had saved up. And I basically just raised capital from friends back home, you know, anywhere from like $4,000 to maybe $20,000, just, just private notes. And the rate was anywhere from, you know, 6%. And some folks, I offered six, but they just gave it, you know, gave me like a 0%, you know, coupon on it. So I think the effective rate ended up being something like two and a half percent of the maybe six or seven notes that I gathered and that all went to a bank account in the U S I wired it into Russia and we closed on it. That's I mean, pretty that's, awesome. <laughs> that's the quick version. You know, the, the funny thing was when we went to close, 
okay, so they don't have a mortgage market, but they also didn't have a system of escrow at all. Now, I know today this is all changed. This okay, because I was about to ask, how can anybody buy real estate in Russia then? But yeah. Well, and this was back when, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, people were trading mm-hmm. apartments yeah. for, for cars. You know, grandma dies and she leaves an apartment and they were worth maybe 15,000 or 20, even in like places like Moscow. And they just didn't, wow. they just, and, and they never went up. I mean, it was never really an asset in that sense. And so what people would do though, and this was true when we bought, you basically like I wired that money in and I thought well, we could just transfer it to title and do all that. Well, no, you go to the bank, you withdraw cash, right? $70,000 in cash. You put in a plastic bag and then you walk out of the bank. Now think about how scary this is in, in Russia right after the 1990s. I mean, it was, things were stabilizing more in the 2000s, but I mean, this, this whole thing was like, you know, we had, we had to have a plan around how do we not get, you know, shot, you know, or how do we mitigate the risk of something really bad happening when you've got $70,000 in a plastic bag and you're walking out and going to title. I wouldn't walk with $70,000 here in the streets of Santa Monica. No, so. no, it's terrible. <laughs> but this was how they did it. So, you know, my realtor told me, you know, he's like, hey, I got a gun on me, so don't worry about it. And so I said, okay, fine. I guess that's the way we do it. Nobody really knows about this transaction. So nobody's talking, you know, I, I hope nobody's talking about it. But we show up to title and it's just this building with a lot of people walking around with paper bags. I'm like, this is just a wow. terrible system. Look at all these folks. And so that's the way they did it for a long time. And so we signed some documents and then went out into the parking lot, sat in the back of a car. And I just gave this bag to the lady I bought from. And she proceeded to count $70,000 right there, (laughs) you know, in the back of this car. And then after that was finished, she got out and walked off and, you know, we own this flat, this apartment. That's insane. You're just walking there with $70,000 in your hands and just... Give it to a lady in the back of a car. That, that's insane. Well, I think I understand how different it is to purchase multifamily or, or real estate here than in Russia now. I'm assuming that that was the only deal you bought there? Yeah, that was it. We bought at a good time. You know, the market, the mortgage market came in while we had that apartment. I think the mortgage market came in 2005 or so or 2004. Oil shot way up. I mean, it was a good time to be in Russian mm-hmm. real estate. People don't talk about investing in Russian real estate. The whole idea just sounds completely insane. Yeah. But I think wherever you are in the world, you just really have to study the situation. And it could be a terrible time or it could be a great time. And in some countries, you, you know, a foreigner can't do that easily. But it just happened to be, you know, right time, right place kind of a thing. But yeah, we moved back and had, you know, had plenty of equity to begin investing. And I ended up buying here in Texas, you know, little houses and a duplex and a triplex and reinvested that Russian capital that I acquired over there. And this time you, d- you didn't have to walk in the streets of Austin with a bag filled with cash. Thankfully, no, no. But, the, <laughs> but, but I was really shocked because I started looking at the closing costs and I'm like, I'm pay- I paid 500 in Russia. What am- and I, I saw these costs. I'm like, you kidding me? Like, what? <laughs> what is this processing fee for like 300? So I was kind of shocked, you know, but obviously that's just the, you know, the, the price of doing business. But no, it, yeah, much safer, that's for sure. Well, 
Well, so now now you're buying properties here in the United States. And let's talk about the assets that you're purchasing. So your focus is multifamily and self-storage, which are both mm -hmm. pretty solid asset classes. In your opinion, what are the pros and cons of purchasing them? And which one do you like more, multifamily or self-storage? Well, we do probably 70% multifamily. I think the, the other 30% mm -hmm. is going to be self-storage and mobile home parks. You know, multifamily is, you know, I feel like there are more opportunities, there are more deals out there. The disadvantage with self-storage can be that, you know, the cost of construction is pretty low. So there's a lower barrier to entry, I think, in that industry, you know, and so there's a lot of people getting into it. And so you, you just have to be really smart with how you buy that. It's a different animal. But I, I like self-storage for the recession durability of that. I mean, self-storage as an asset class has done the best in a recession. Multifamily is not bad either. And that's one of the reasons why we like multifamily, but self-storage kind of edges that out and mobile home parks. So I think self-storage mobile home parks are good in your portfolio, you know, for recession proofing and, you know, for diversification, mm -hmm. but multifamily, the cash flow, the, you know, where we are as a country becoming a renter nation, lots of great reasons to own multifamily as well. Mm -hmm. And what is it about self-storage that makes this asset class, you know, kind of recession proof? Yeah, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of things. I think what happens is, you know, when people begin losing jobs, they'll downsize. Mm -hmm. And so if they've overbought a house, say they bought a 2,500 square foot house, and they're going to go into an apartment. Well, now they've got a bunch of, of stuff they don't want to part with. And, you know, we as Americans, we like our stuff. We like to accumulate stuff. You know, it's easier to downsize the house, take all the stuff and put it in a storage space. So I think that's one of the reasons. I think just overall people, people are just, you know, they're buying stuff. They, you know, more and more, we just want more stuff. Even in a recession, you know, we want to store stuff. So I think that's probably the main, the main thing. And then, you know, you can get, you know, I think the financing is pretty good on, on self-storage assets. You know, just, just like multifamily, you can get low fixed interest rates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they all help for sure when, you know, we're in a very, very, you know, it's a good period right now, but everyone keeps wondering when is it going to end? How severe is it going to be? That's all, you know, everywhere I go, that's, that's what people talk about. And I think it's really uh -huh. important to choose the right asset class and invest it. So I actually don't think there's anything that is purely recession proof, but some asset yes. classes are going to do better than others. And even within the asset classes, I think, you know, when it comes to multifamily, class A luxury apartment buildings are probably not going to do as well as other types of real estate. So that's right. Of yeah, multifamily. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so let's shift and talk about your strategy. So when you're purchasing multifamily and self-storage, you're basically using co-sponsorship as the main strategy. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that works? Yeah. So primarily, you know, my role at this point is really to find, like, just personally, I don't want to really be in one city and I don't really want to be in one state with my personal holdings. I want to I want to be diversified. You know, I want to be in class B in Atlanta and I want to be in a self-storage deal in Phoenix. You know, I, I want to spread my capital around. Now, in order to do that, if I am the sole syndicator myself, you really can't, 
be an expert in all these markets and all these asset classes at the same time. So what we've done is we've developed relationships with what we think are the best operators. These are people that are friends of ours that live in these different markets that wake up and live and breathe, you know, for example, buying apartments in Phoenix, you know, our team there, they know the market, they live it, they breathe it, they understand it. They're in the market way better to partner with them as a co-sponsor and, you know, join their team and then help them to close on these opportunities. And so we've got about a half a dozen relationships and when they have opportunities, we look at them. We don't like all of them sometimes, you know, we're pretty selective. We like to be very conservative. We've said no to a lot of things. I mean, I think right now we're saying no more than ever just because where we are in the cycle. But yeah, that enables us to be on, you know, multiple teams and kind of add value and help. And, you know, it's a relationship business. So these are folks that we trust. These are high integrity people that we feel like they're professional. You know, they have a lot to lose if they mess up. They don't want to mess up. I mean, it's a high stewardship to manage, you know, this kind of capital on this level. And so character becomes a huge asset. And so, you know, just like with any business, the team makes the whole thing. You can have a great asset with great numbers, but if your team, if there are issues with the team and if, you know, if there's bad communication, if there, you know, if there's some sketchy stuff going on, the project just doesn't go well. So I, I think, I think that's the thing is finding really good people and then, connecting with them and doing business with them. And so that, that's, that's what we do. That's our strategy is really try to, you know, you can't know everybody and you can't be in every market, but choosing where to be and who to work with, that's been our, our motif. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, you touched on a very interesting point because if somebody wants to scale their business, doing everything yourself is impossible. Even as one company you can always scale faster if you partner with other people. So if you can bring something to the table and they can bring something to the table and you trust them, which is the most important thing, then you can basically create that partnership and scale a lot faster than if you would purchase properties on your own in Austin. And I'm sure you're doing that as well, but it's always kind of the fine balance between the part of your portfolio that you're purchasing as the lead sponsor and other part that you're basically partnering with others so you can grow a lot faster. Yeah, that's right. Yep. All right, great. And then how do you choose a sponsor to partner with? So you mentioned earlier that integrity and characters are a must for you. What are the things do you look for in a sponsor and how do you find them? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think, you know, if you were going to build a basketball team or like a football team, I mean, what do you look for? You know, you look mm -hmm. for guys who are really talented or women who are really talented in their skill. You know, are they a point guard? Are they a forward? If it's basketball, you know, what are those skills that really cause them to be sort of above the rest? So it's kind of like, I kind of view it as like a sport like that. Like if I'm going to put a team together, who are the people that are really the absolute best in the business? You know, who are the people that, man, if I could only be on this guy's team or that guy, you know, is head and shoulders above everybody else in the industry. How do I link up with him and how do I do business with him? That's kind of the way you look at it because it is a performance business. You know, there are people that are better at this than others. And then there are some who are going to go out and make a big mistake. And so, you know, again, it, it's character, you know, track record, experience in the industry. And, you know, in real estate, finance is a huge part of it. So I think underwriting skills, lots of our partners have pretty extensive background in like finance. They're, they're either like a CFA, they have some kind of certification in finance, or they're like, a, you know, maybe a former CPA or 
strong construction background. These skills are so important. You know, you've just, you've got to know how to underwrite these things and you've got to understand the finance around multifamily apartments and self-storage because it is very complicated. It's not easy and it's not something that you can just sort of go to a one week conference and kind of figure it all out. The guys we work with are, you know, they've been in, you know, like in one case, you know, a a guy who's been an accountant, you know, in the corporate world for years and now he's a CPA, but also has construction background. I mean, that's what you want to look for, you know, high competence and high character. And, you know, the deals are hard to find, but when you can get all these things to match up, you got the high character and high competence plus a good deal. Well, then you've mitigated a whole lot of risk. And then of course, you know, there's some chemistry with relationships. I mean, these are, you know, we're all friends, you know, we really enjoy being together. You know, when I go to these places, I mean, if I go to Atlanta or Phoenix, I mean, these are, you know, we're having fun. And I think this investing ought to be fun. It ought to be, you know, we're building friendships with folks that we want to be around. And, you know, so I I think all those things kind of, you know, those are really kind of the the requirements or the criteria that we kind of look for. Interesting. Yeah. And I think, I mean, they all make a lot of sense and it's really hard to find the right people out there. There's, there's, I think a lot of sponsors and syndicators out there. And so what you're looking for is pretty unique because you're looking not only on something, like you said earlier, I'm looking to see something unique about their background, their character that separates them apart, you know, set them apart from everyone else, which I think Mm -hmm. is really interesting. I want to kind of move to the last part of our interview and talk about the process. So you're co-sponsoring deals, you're raising, you know, you're doing it as part of a syndication where you raise capital from others. Can you talk to me a little bit about what process you have in place before, during and after you're basically completing a transaction? Yeah. So typically what we'll have is one of our partners will find something that they, you know, either a broker will bring them a deal off market. Like we've got one off market right now that was brought and, you know, we'll, we'll begin the conversation right away. Hey, you know, how do your investors feel about another multifamily asset? We feel like our investors are, you know, are ready to buy this. What are yours? So we'll just kind of have this conversation and we'll talk about high level stuff like, Hey, you know, here's the deal. And so there's some, there's some conversation about, does this fit into what we want to do, our strategy? And then, and then it's, we just put under contract if we can do that. Once it's under contract, you know, we put the deal deck together and the investment summary and all of that, begin talking with you know, the bank. And so, I mean, it's, it's a typical, I mean, th- this process is the same, I think, probably for any syndicator in the sense that you put it under contract and you begin talking with the bank and you begin mm-hmm. putting your investment summary together, you begin talking with investors. And that's, it's pretty straightforward you know, after 30 days, of course, you, you know, the diligence period ends and, and now your, you know, your earnest money is solid. It's hard. And then you go to closing, you close it. Typically what we do is we'll get all of the soft commitments we can early, like within the first couple of weeks and it fills up pretty quick. And so then we have, you know, the paperwork and the PPM and all of that, the signing and then the wiring about probably two or three weeks before the closing date. So all that's pretty standard stuff, you know, in the meantime, answering a lot of questions from investors, whether that be email or get on the phone. But when we, we typically will close on the property and then, you know, we just, every month we'll, we'll just communicate to the investors. Okay, here's a project 
progress, you know, the, here are the number of units that we've renovated, or if it's like a mobile home park or a self-storage, you know, here's the addition we're building to this facility. And so we're, we're constantly communicating, you know, systematically every month or every quarter and paying, you know, dividends, distributions every month or every quarter. So that's kind of the process of how, of how we do it. Mm-hmm. And then do you have any, you know, one tool that you like to use that actually make your business a little bit more effective? One tool that makes my business more effective? I think just getting on the phone and talking to people. I don't know. I, I feel like this is a relationship business. And so mm-hmm. we really, we're not out there trying to get a thousand investors. You know, we're trying to get a smaller number of people that we really know well. And, you know, we have investors who are retiring and, you know, these are big decisions and they're allocating significant capital toward different projects. And so I think it's important to just get face to face. Maybe the best tool is a cup of coffee, you know, sitting across the table, you know, drinking a cup, maybe, maybe the coffee is the tool. Maybe it's, maybe it's zoom like this. We can interact face to face or just a phone call, but you know, that's really it. I mean, I, I just, I think that's the most important thing because it is a trust business and it's a trust business all the way around, not, not just investor to the, the general partnership, but among the general partnership team and with your property manager, with your construction team, I mean, it just, that is it. Trust is, it's all, I mean, it's everything in this business. I, I mean, I, you know, I haven't run a lot of different types of businesses, but I imagine that's generally true yeah. of all business. I, yeah. I think it, I think it is. I mean, I've, I've started a couple of nonprofits and I, I certainly true in that space for sure. But yeah, how do you build trust with people if that's like the thing? Well, I think the tool is probably just transparency and being honest. And if you don't have an answer, don't make it up. Mm-hmm. But, you know, human connection and, and relationship and trust, that's everything, I think. I don't know if, you know, if that's the right answer, what you're looking there's, for. There's no right or wrong answer. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that there's a, a like magic tool or like a piece of software or like, you know, a great underwriting. I mean, there are certainly tools like that that help the job kind of work or like maybe there's like a hack that, you know, hey, how do you get that off market deal? You know. But I, it all just comes back to relationships and trust. Yeah, I totally understand. And it's not only with investors, it's the same with owners, you know, apartment owners and brokers. They all need to trust you that you're going to be able to close, that you're, you know, mm-hmm. you're a professional buyer. And then, yeah, I think it's all about trust because by the end of the day, people do business with people they like and trust. And we've heard that a lot. And I think it's very true. And I always tell you know, my passive investors and other potential investors, before you even look at a deal, look at the sponsor, make sure you like this person, Mm -hmm. you trust them because you're going to be partners for at least five years, three to five years. And Mm -hmm. so trust is, is everything. That's for sure. That's for sure. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for sharing your insights with us and the amazing story about buying an apartment in Russia when the gun was involved. That was interesting. So you basically <laughs> paid four or $500 to have a lawyer, a broker, and basically and a title searcher. An, a title searcher. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and a bodyguard, apparently, yeah, all for $500. Right. So uh, <laughs> I don't think this model is going to work here in the US, but that was really interesting to hear. If, <laughs> if our listeners want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? You can get me at uh, mike at steeperrockpartners.com. Steeperrockpartners.com is our website. 
I'm also on Bigger Pockets and the forums. You can find me there as well. All right. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ellie. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.